0: private lender podcast episode 106
1: the private lender podcast quote of the day comes to us from joe biden who said don't tell me what you value show me your budget and i'll tell you what you value What's going on, Lender Nation? Greetings and welcome to the Private Lender Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Baker, and you are listening to episode 106. The Private Lender Podcast is the only one that's dedicated to teaching everyday people just like you and me how to prosper with the most passive form of real estate investing known to humankind while giving tips and ideas that can help keep your money safe with private mortgage lending. Look, it's just as simple. If you're looking for practical tips and advice on being a successful private lender or on how to create wealth without banks or Wall Street, then you're in the right place. But if you want to learn from my mistakes so that you can avoid them, jump around them and prosper much quicker, then pull up a chair and pour yourself a stiff drink, my friend, and get ready to take notes because the Private Lender Podcast is made just for you. Now, let me go ahead and get the legal crap out of the way. The Private Lender Podcast does not constitute an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation of any security or any other product, service, or investment. We're just talking here, just rapping out loud. Do your own due diligence and make sure you stay compliant. Having said that, Let's get into the heart of the matter today. Today, I've got the the good fortune of of talking with Jim Mafuccio from Aspen Funds, and it's kind of funny because not long ago I decided that I was I was going to no longer interview real estate fund fund managers uh, for for various reasons, mostly because I had locked onto some green fund managers and exactly succeed. So, knowing that, I wanted to be very conscious of who I led on the show. What we talked about, so on and so forth. So I just basically just said, okay, no funds, you know, no fund managers for a while, except I was I was looking at um, a few crowdfunding things like that. But anyhow, I one of uh, Jim of Future or Aspen Funds assistants reached out to me and said, "Would you know? Would you consider interviewing Jim on the Private Learner Podcast?" And I immediately said no. I said, "Thank you, but I I can't recommend anyone." Invest in subordinate liens and especially non performing subordinate liens. You know, it's just, I just didn't feel like it was a good fit. But then the more I thought about it, I was thinking, who better to speak about such a topic uh, on this podcast? It is a topic I'd like to cover, but it's, it's one that I don't feel like I have much authority on. I do some, I have done some second lending or lending in the second position, but I, you know, just don't feel like I have done it enough to talk confidently on it. So then I decided, well, probably wouldn't be a bad idea to have someone like Jim come on and and talk about it and the ins and the outs. Um, Just because I don't do something doesn't mean that I can't interview someone who does. It doesn't mean that I can't learn from Jim's process or to help you do the same. That's the whole purpose of this platform, I think. So at the end of the day, here we go. Uh, Interview with Jim Mafuchio of Aspen Funds, and let's get down to uh, the brass tacks in his interview. Here we go. Baba Bowie. Hey, Linda Nation, thanks for joining me today. And I want to give a, a special thanks to Jim Mafuccio, who has come on to talk about his, uh, his fund, Aspen Funds, and the particular niche they've carved out for themselves in, in Second Lean Notes. So uh, Jim, welcome to the Private Lender Podcast. Hey, great to be here with you, Keith. And I'm excited because uh, as everyone knows, uh, ad nauseum that I, I tell, especially people starting off, they just got their first self-directed IRA stay away from second liens, get the good <laughs> loan to value, you know, stay safe. You know, the, the number one rule is return of investment before you talk about the return on it. You know? So uh, for every dollar that goes out, you want to get it back. So tell us, um, how did you get started in this, in this crazy world of second, distressed second liens at that? Just not even good ones, but distressed.
0: Yeah, that's right. By the way, I, I agree with your statement. Stay away from second liens. In fact, send them all to me. <laughs> but uh so in a nutshell i'll just give you a very quick background you know i i, I was actually a civil engineer i graduated from lsu go tigers in uh, 1979 <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh. i saw that look on your face you know, you know how many
1: people that wore lsu shirts i worked with in the oil field and i don't think yeah. they, they went to prison before they went to high school <laughs> well i didn't do that but, uh, <laughs> so good for you good for you. You got your paper
0: but I did go into the oil field. I actually went to work for Exxon in, uh, in 1980 and, and uh, did the corporate engineer thing for about 5.5 years. And I just... The entrepreneurship kind of turned on in me. I got my real estate license in 86 and I jumped out into transactional real estate. And then I got involved in development. So I was developing uh, small residential infill projects in, in Ventura County in California, coastal California. and. I'll just make this real short. I went through the S&L crisis, lost everything. That was in the uh, by by nineteen ninety five six. I was tanked, broke, underwater, having been having had a you know a seven figure net worth going into that, and all kinds of projects. All of them went dumped and went south. And again, it was because of a mortgage related crisis. I'm going to highlight that. So then, uh, then I kind of got back into the game, and, and in the uh, 1999, started back in, and by 2005 six, there I was again, a bunch of leveraged real estate deals, development deals, doing great, killing it. Market was on fire, and I actually even had focused on affordable housing, thinking that there was going to be some correction because you know values had really ratcheted up in that time frame, and it it. That thing crashed. The 2008 mortgage crisis took everything so so deep, so fast, and for so long, nothing could stay underwater that long and survive. So once again, I found myself in you know around the 2010 time frame, completely broke, negative net worth, in Kansas City, a new city. I'd lived in Ventura County for 27 years, and here I am. And, uh, you know, 55 years old with uh, five teenagers, two of them adopted internationally and uh, literally no immediate source of income and, you know, no investors really to speak of. Uh, I mean, I could probably go back to California at that point and raise money again. But I mean, you know, when you're beaten down, that's not the thing you're after. So, yeah, I was flipping homes because, you know, every other home was boarded up, you know, kind of thing. And, and it was a heyday. And, and I was just, I was flipping homes and put some people to work doing that. And at the same time, studying the market because whenever there's a crisis, you know there's always opportunity. And I kind of had an epiphany in 2010, and I, I saw this: the place to get in, involved in the rebound in the coming recovery was the distressed debt. Everybody was going after the REOs further downstream, and then the even the uh, foreclosure auctions, and then further upstream from that, the pre-foreclosures, working short sales. And I did some of all of that, but I thought, you know at the end of the day, it's where the distress starts is when a loan goes into default. So these institutions have to get rid of this paper before it go, they go off a cliff. So I, I started looking into that. In 2010, I went to a conference, a note investing conference in Denver. And 90%, 95% of the content was about senior liens, buying the defaulted first mortgage and then running through It's really a checkers game, figuring out, are you going to exit through the property or are you going to exit through the borrower, making some sort of a a modification with the borrower. But there was one guy off to the side (laughs) in one of the breakout rooms talking about second liens. And I mean, as soon as I saw what he was doing, the lights went on and I go, oh my goodness, this is where I'm sticking my fork into this thing. Because I needed something that I could come into with minimal investment and the most multiplier effect, the greatest leverage, and buying the seconds, particularly when the first mortgage is performing, it was just genius. When I saw it, it was like, oh my goodness, this makes all kinds of sense. And whereas hard dollar equity is super important, obviously, in anything real estate related, what we learned was we could actually make more money in terms of multiple on the loans where there wasn't so much equity above our position, if any, and because there's this thing called emotional equity. And you know, this, these are people that are paying their first mortgage, so you know they have an income, you know they want to stay in their home. And we've bought this nagging second lien that's on their property for pennies on the dollar. So we have a whole lot of room to work things out with the borrower, whether it's a one-time fast settlement or whether it's a loan modification. And that's on the ones where we have very little to no equity. so we actually make our best multiples on those, but they're low numbers. Like we may buy a loan for you know we, we may buy, for instance, a $50,000 that's the payoff balance that the, that the borrower owes, but we may pay 5,000 dollars for that loan, and maybe the first 10,000 of our position is covered with equity, but everything beyond that is you know it's blue sky. Well we can go to that borrow and enter into a loan mod or Settle that loan and make a two x, three x on our money pretty quickly if if we have a a reasonable and a cooperative borrower. So, the good, the bad, and the ugly of this thing. We've been doing it eight years now, full time. We've built a company. We have twenty people now, and this is we're focused on second mortgages. And after doing thousands of these, I'll tell you, we make between two point three and two point five x on our purchase price. So, if we buy a million dollars worth of these. Defaulted second mortgages. We will pull in two and a half million dollars of revenue, and it typically takes anywhere. We start getting exits in six months, and typically out to three years. So it's a you know it's a it's patient money because there's a pretty elaborate workout process we go through. But it's pretty good multipliers. I just wish there was more of the product. So that's kind of a nutshell of what we do on that side of our business. And then we do have another side of the business, which is an income fund where. We actually buy reperforming mortgages, whether they're seconds or first. and we buy some hard money loans from other originators as well. And that's a way we can keep our passive, truly passive investors that just want mailbox money. We can keep them happy with a nice preferred return, and we do all the brain damage of uh, keeping the loans on track. And when they break, we fix them. You know, uh, we have since that's our core competency. If we have a default rate of ten percent to twelve percent in our income fund, we know, how to get, we know how to do workouts. We know how to get that thing back to a performing status. So
1: that's it in a nutshell. All right. Let me, I want to back up a little bit. So uh, is your fund for accredited investors only?
0: Yes. At the, at the current time, it is. A, it's accredited only.
1: Okay. And it, just for um, education, it's the, uh, can you run through the SEC code, uh, the 50- 506C is what our funds are. That's the, that's the, exempt,
0: the particular exemption. That, uh, that we fall under yeah. gotcha.
1: So are you, are you guys buying tapes of houses of seconds or is it a cherry pick piecemeal? How do you get your deal flow?:
0: It's really everything from buying one-offs to but more, more typical for us because of our size now is we are buying larger pools and, and it's really interesting in the seconds world, you know you're not going to find a lot of quality product like on the, on the note exchanges. It's really a relationship-based deal it's it's not a very normalized market a lot of the institutions that uh generated this paper you know they charge it off their books you know typically after 90 days it's treated differently than than a than a first mortgage it's almost treated like consumer debt i don't fully get that end of it but it's charged off and it's really worthless to the to the institution and a lot of them they won't even sell that paper. it 'll they'll, they'll, just expire. It'll, the statute of limitations will time it out, and, and it 'll never see the light of day. because for one, it's just they have higher priorities, and for two, I think some of them look at the political cost of selling this paper out on the street and then ending up with some cowboy that's you know mistreating the precious consumers, and uh, you know that's happened. so we're very compliance minded. we have a great reputation we've actually been uh, vetted at, at a pretty deep level by, by a government entity that we bought some paper from through an intermediary. And uh, we actually had the FDIC, you know, looking into our processes. And we actually came out with a, with a really, you know, it's on, an unofficial report, but pretty much got the, uh, you know, the thumbs up, like what we were doing was good because we're not, we're not out to, to take people's homes. We have to start foreclosure probably 65% of the time but we only end up foreclosing less than 2% of the time. And most of the time, it's, it's agreeable at that point in time, the borrower realizes, I really can't afford this house. So, uh, so we're very, we're very uh, you know people-oriented and minded. To us, a win-win is when we can cancel a whole bunch of debt for a borrower, keep them in their home, create a reperforming asset that we can then sell for two and a half or three times what we paid for it. That's very typical. Those are our numbers. And so uh, it's, it's really a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a win-win, truly.
1: You know, uh, the bigger the risk, the bigger the reward, right? But it sounds like if you're paying pennies on the dollar, you are a couple of things. One, you're setting yourself up properly. And two, if anyone's out there listening, originating their own private loans, you don't want to sell a loan to Jim, okay? You want to avoid selling the loan to him, uh, especially if you listen to my podcast and take any of my advice. But uh, so don't use this as an exit strategy, but it's there if you need. It's always good to know it's there if you need. It. You mentioned something that I like. You said that these people have emotional equity in the property, so you know, like you said, they're they're performing on the first lien. I'm just curious: are these usually like uh, home equity lines, or they could be? I'd say probably thirty or forty percent of them are home
0: equity lines. Others are just you know fixed rate seconds that people took out whenever they took them out. Emotional equity, just basically, there's really two components. One's emotional equity, and then one is kind of what I call pragmatic equity. So emotional equity is look. We bought this home. We put our own finishes into it. We've lived here 10 years, 15 years. We know our neighbors. We like the schools. Our kids have friends. We're not going anywhere if we can afford the monthly payment. If we can afford to stay, we're going to stay. You know, people don't wake up in the morning. Your typical household don't wake up in the morning and look at Zillow and say, look at this, honey. Our equity has gone down You know, $5,000. Maybe we should sell this asset. It's home sweet home. We most of our assets are in uh, across the middle of the country. I mean, we have some on the coasts, but we're, and we're I think we're in 38 states right now with our with our portfolio, and so our average. I just ran the numbers on the most recent pool of seconds that we bought, and it was like a 32 loan pool, and the average FMV home value was 250 thousand dollars. So you can see it's right in that middle. It's it's right at the median pricing for the nation. So this is bread and butter housing. It's, it's more or less workforce housing. And people don't want to just leave. They're not going to leave because they're upside down twenty dollars or $30,000. They're going to leave because they can't afford the monthly nut. So, and the other thing is, so what are their alternatives if they do leave or if we do end up having to, to uh, foreclose? In a lot of cases, the homes that are, that are securing our position would actually rent for more money than what their mortgage payment is first and second combined. So really, if you think about it, where are they going to go? You know, they've, if they've been through the 08 to 2014 cycle, there's a good chance they've modified their first because when they had trouble paying our loan, they also had trouble typically paying the first. Some of these people are still sitting on 2 3 4%, you know, money on their first. And it's the best alternative financially, even for them is to stay home, stay in their house. And we have a lot of tools to help them because of the discounts we buy at. I do want to say one thing. Most of the loans we buy these days, we're buying in the twenty to twenty-five percent of the unpaid principal balance range, and those loans would typically be ones where the senior is performing, and we have enough equity to cover our investment. And we've paid all the way up to in the sixty percent range of UPB. If we have, you know, if we have a loan that we pay say forty thousand dollars for, but it's a it's a eighty thousand dollar balance. But even above our $80,000 balance, there's another 150000 in equity. Tell me where the risk is in that. I mean, I would rather own that second than the underlying first because really, if you think about it, I've leveraged my, at my position. The first mortgage is actually my financing that I don't have to pay. It's a crazy sub too. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. And that's one of the reasons it's a pretty lucrative game because So many people, including a lot of institutional players, either don't realize that you can or aren't willing to foreclose from second position. But when we foreclose from second position, there's a false narrative out there that says we have to pay off the first. That's absolutely not the case. In most states, we have the right to reinstate the first and keep it current, even though it's not our loan. We're not the borrower on the loan. We foreclose from second, we get the deed to the property, and it's a sub two deal. It's exactly what you said. Now, there are states where the first does not have to let us reinstate. They can pursue foreclosure, but those are typically the states that take a couple of years to foreclose. And that gives us plenty of time to clean the property up and sell it. And I mean, we've made some incredible profits on the handful of ones that we did foreclose and where we flipped the property. So, We've actually foreclosed from second and then turned around and resold the property back to the borrower because it took that to wake them up to realize that we were serious about, you know, securing our position. And so that those have ended up being real wonderful stories because again, here you got the bar, the original borrower that's back in place on their property and they're performing again. You know, we had them put $200,000 down, which got us back our investment plus some. And then they're making us monthly payments and they've been great borrowers ever since. So. You know we have all kinds of stories, as you can imagine, in this business.
1: So what I tell people is, if if you're going to lay a second on a, on a property, you want to talk to whoever owns the first position and say, look, you know, if this borrower, because I did not do this, and so this is one of my tales of woe. So anyway, so yeah, I, I um I, I did not contact the first and put the second on the property, and lo and behold, the first went to foreclose and then wiped me out, and I said, hey. I called the attorney, I uh, was representing him. I said, hey, uh, you know, is there something we can do here? And the guy who had the first position was even more fed up with the borrower than I was uh, <laughs> trying to track money. He's like, he's like yeah. He goes, you want to make it whole? It's, it'll be 47 grand. You know, and it's, and it's yours. And I'm like, the property's not even worth that. I'm like, no. All right, fine. Yeah. Done. So when you come in, as, um, it's, it's automatic that it's, uh, you're taking it over. You, you foreclosed out the second position, but the first lien is uh, superior. Therefore, it stays in place. Do you have much conversation with any of the people when you purchase the seconds? Do you say, "Hey, guys, we've bought this. Here's our plan. If we have to foreclose, or is it uh, is it all in the paperwork?"
0: Typically, not because these are the first are typically serviced by the major service or national servicers, and they they won't give you the time of day. They don't really have the. These loans are owned in a trust. There's not like a single investor they can go talk to, and the their servicing agreement kind of tells them what they can and can't do. You know, again, the handful of times that this happens, we just make the payment. We just send them the check, or in most cases, just pay online. And they—I don't even know if they know where the money's coming from. They don't really care. Now, by the way, you, you touched on something super important. When we buy these loans, that's the one of the, if not the biggest part of our due diligence is getting a handle on the senior mortgage. You know, a lot of times on the credit report, it's just right there. You can see it. They're current. They had a little tough patch back in. Mid two thousands, and so we know the story on the first. We know what their payment is, what their interest rate is. If their loan was modified, sometimes the mod was recorded. We can go pull that document, and we watch. That's part of our risk management. We watch that first mortgage like a hawk, because if that thing starts to slip, then in some cases it's actually good for us. If we have a ton of equity above us, and the borrower is struggling to make their first payment, then it's a pretty easy conversation to have with the borrower. Like, look, we have to start foreclosure. To protect our position, but you're not even making payments on the first. Why don't we agree to a friendly sale right now? And we'll, you know, we'll give, we'll even give you a discounted payoff, and you'll, you'll put more money in your pocket by selling the property and moving on with life. Obviously, you're having a hard time, you know, keeping your bills paid. Uh, so that actually works works on our benefit. But you know, I hate to say this, but what you didn't do when you put that second on a property we have to do the due diligence on the first is boy, that's the thing for us. We have to find it. So,
1: Oh, absolutely. In my defense, it was, um, it was, uh, the loan was to a very good friend of mine. (laughs) So it wasn't a street. I've had a few. And so, yeah, that's (laughs) why it's like, okay. Yep. Thanksgiving just got weird. Um, okay. So yeah, no, no more of those, (laughs) but I wanted to uh, go back and touch on something. So the other times that I've, uh, had the, uh, a second position I've, I would have the borrower mail me the statements where they were paid, or email, scan an email proof of the payment of the first mortgage was being paid every month. And so, I'm curious: when you purchase a note, how are you able to do that? Is is it through the the borrower's credit report that you see these dings? That's one of the.
0: Yeah, that's the main way. If the borrower's been in bankruptcy, you know, we go on Pacer. That's public information. You know, public access to that information. It's a we can. I mean, really, when when a borrower files Chapter 13 bankruptcy, they're basically under the penalty of perjury perjury to the federal government. They're actually they're supposed to put all their financial information out there for the public to see. And uh, you know, we we have borrowers sometimes threaten us. You know, like, well, if you if you push me on modifying this loan or working, I'm just going to file bankruptcy. And we say, hey, I, I can recommend a couple bankruptcy attorneys. We we love it when they file bankruptcy because you know, it, for the most part because now they're required to put all their financial information out on the table and we can go look at it. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways we can see what's going on with the senior. And sometimes it's, it's an educated guess. But if it's on the credit report, it's, it's right there. I mean, you can see what the pay history is. You can see what their FICO score is. You can, see what, you can see that they've got a car payment of $700 a month. They're down to their last four payments. So when we're negotiating with them to do a loan mod on our second, and they say, we just don't have any more bandwidth. And I say, well, yeah, you're going to have bandwidth in four months when you pay off your $30,000 loan on your Lexus. You know, Your contract payment to us is $450. You'll have uh, plenty of room in your budget left if you don't go back out and finance another expensive vehicle. And it's, you know, it kind of wakes them up when they realize we know a lot about them. You know. <laughs> so...
1: All right, man. That's uh, like I said, I, I find this uh, very fascinating. And I apologize, I'm just I'm just listening and learning. So I'm, usually I, no one loves to hear their own voice more than me. So uh, you know, normally I'm just chatting away. So I wanted to ask you, obviously, I want I admire the, you take a business approach to this, right? So you're only going to get in there if there's a steep discount. You have a lot of margin for error, right? Like you said, you know, the more that you, if there's equity or whatever, there's tools. If they even if they don't, if they have the emotional equity. There's tools that you can use. I'm sure, you know, credit repair helps all this other thing to help them get them back on their feet. But when you... I would say you, in order for you to operate and, and be successful, you, you must have a, an ultra-conservative underwriting philosophy. And
0: yes or no, or... Um, well, it's, it's... You know, when you say ultra-conservative underwriting guidelines, it, it's... It, you know, if you're talking to an institutional banker or mortgage person they would say, you're buying defaulted second mortgages. There's no such thing. It's outside of the envelope of a conservative underwriting. We have an entrepreneurial, pragmatic, very in-depth due diligence system and underwriting process. And again, we're typically buying a large pool of loans. So we, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly in there. But we know how to go look at the good. We, we go look at the one, the fat ones that have a ton of equity. And those we underwrite, we have to know what's going on with that senior mortgage. And then the rest of it is pretty much the way you would underwrite a first. You know, We look at what our investment to value ratio is going to be, how much equity covers our investment. Because again, as you said, we want to make sure we get that money back. And on those, those are the expensive loans. And so we don't want margin for error on those. The biggest surprise we ever get on those is if we buy like an East Coast... A lot of the East Coast states use judicial foreclosure, which means it's basically a lawsuit. It's a lawsuit to... Get get the collateral back that the borrower pledged when they promised to pay you. I mean, it's kind of insane when you think about it, but it's the process you have to go through. And a lot of times, yeah. So a lot of times, we think we know what the balance owing on the senior mortgage is, but by the time and and we can dig into the court records and and do a better job usually of finding finding that out. But we've been surprised by a couple of them where we thought the balance say was. Six hundred thousand dollars on the first, and it turned out it was really nine hundred thousand by the time all the legal fees and advances and, and judgment. That can be kind of an ouch. So we discount price when we buy a New York loan. You know, I, I have a saying. I think I robbed this from somebody else, but it's like there's no bad notes. There's only bad price. So I'll buy New York loans, but I'm not going to pay the same thing that I would for the same loan in say Missouri, where Missouri is a fast foreclosure state. It's a trustees deed state. The values are not wild; they're very predictable, and it's just pretty easy to. We actually are able to protect our position pretty, pretty easily, and so those are the great states. So
1: that's cool. All right, yeah. As one of my first loans, I told the guy he wanted seventy thousand to buy this little strip center across the street from some, from some uh, refineries here on the coast, and I went and took a look at it, and I was like, I don't know, man, like just feeling really bad, and and I said, look, I don't know any commercial appraisers. I'm gonna have to go, you know, dust up my knowledge on the, uh, you know, market and price, you know, all that kind of stuff, all the different types of appraisals. And I told him, I said, "Look, tell you what. End of the day, if this thing appraises for at least 150, you uh, you know, I'll give you the 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 letter, you know, proof of funds. You can close, you know, do whatever you need to do." And the uh, the appraiser came back and uh, 305 as is. And so I told the borrower, I said, "Look, you can default on this loan." And I will loan to you again. <laughs> I was like, yes. I was like, of course, no, he didn't. I mean, he, you know, he handled it and he worked it well. But when you have that much margin for error built into your buy, I mean, if there's ever the, the adage that you, know, you make your money in real estate when you buy it is true in this case, uh, like I said, no bad notes, just bad prices. Right. Do you find that the note doing, the, there's a, Obviously, you enjoy it. it's been very lucrative. But for me, I like the idea of paper because I don't have to deal with contractors. i might have to deal with servicers, you know, the occasional appraiser, and a title agent, but they don't usually set an appointment for three o'clock to give you a drywall bid and, and no show. So you've seen kind of all aspects of it. Um, do, you, do you think the flipping is more of a young man's game? Because I tell you, that's where I'm I'm heading towards right now. But um, you know,
0: uh, I don't know that I would say it's it's more of a a young man's game. I, th- I think it's, you know, when I did flipping, and I think it's the reason most people do flipping, I did it because I didn't have enough capital to be more of a passive. Like I didn't have enough capital to go out and just buy performing loans or even non performing loans and get them performing and hold them. So, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the old adage do I want cash flow or do I want, you know, lump sum profits? And honestly, I want both. But usually when people start, so maybe this is what you meant by a young man's game. You, know, you really want to generate some... You want to build up some capital. So a lot of people will start flipping houses or wholesaling. You know? So you get fast paychecks and pretty decent paychecks. Frankly, I mean, you know, it's funny to hear wholesalers and flippers argue about whose model is best. And then you find out at the end of the day, a lot of flippers do some wholesaling and a lot of wholesalers do some flipping. But the thing of it is, if you're a wholesaler, by definition, you've created this very efficient acquisition machine. So you can cherry pick. I mean, if you see one, this is a no brainer, I can flip this one and make another, you know, then you're, you're going to keep your cash flow going by wholesaling. That's your main thing. And then you're going to flip a house. I love property. You know, a lot of people in my space and the paper space, well, they'll preach the sermon on, you know, we love paper because it's, there's no, you know, toilets, trash, tenants and all that and it's just passive cash flow and you can manage it cash flow all over the country super simple and all of that's true the thing of it is if you think about a mortgage let's say a 30 year mortgage in a perfect world it gets paid off and in 30 years yeah you've had great pay, uh, cash flow for 30 years but in 30 after 30 years you've got nothing you've got all your money back plus the profit you've made but you've got zero if you buy a house that has a 30 year mortgage on it or put a 30 year mortgage on it and you manage that properly in thirty years, you have an asset that's free and clear that'll pay your yourself and your and your heirs for the rest of their lives. You know, because rents aren't going anywhere but up. So I like both. I, I think it's I'm not one of these extremists. I, I I love having my day in and day out business be be the notes. First of all, I love it now because I, I you know, I hardly do anything with it. I oversee some of the, the acquisitions, but we have an acquisitions director who's excellent. You know, like I said, we have a this this was me and my son in our basement in 2011 buying the first, second mortgages. And I literally was beyond broke. And now we have a, um, you know, we're, we're 40 on our way to $50 million of assets under management. And that's purchase price value. And we have 20 people just by just by staying focused on this business model and improving it. So we have systems and processes in place and an attorney network nationwide, and uh, you know, there's quite a lot to the business. Uh, it's one thing to do it on a mom and pop basis, and that that was fun too back then. But I'm having the time of my life now, having a having scaled this and having a, uh, you know, having a company that that knows what they're doing. So great team.
1: Yeah, no, this is great. I, I, I like what you've done here, man. You like I said, it's very niche. At, at first blush, it's oh, it's toxic. Why would you do that? And that's why I was like, no, come on, Jim, let's come on and tell me about it and tell the tell the private lender nation everything about it. So how, do, um, how can people learn more about investing with you? Or uh, And this is not a solicitation if the SEC is listening. But nonetheless, if uh, people want to learn more about Aspen Funds or what you do in your business model, uh, how, how do they get a hold of you?
0: Yeah. So uh, we, we have a website. That's the best thing is just go to the website and hit the Contact Us and just tell us what, you, what you're looking for. It's www.aspenfunds.net. So one word, A-S-P-E-N-F-U-N-D-S. Dot, I'm sorry, dot us, not dot net, dot us, AspenFunds.us. And uh, just, just t- you know, contact us and let us know what it is you're looking for. If you're, we don't have an education platform. We're not selling home study courses. However, I will be happy to point somebody interested in getting involved actively in the note business. I'll be happy to point you towards some educators, some conferences. That's how I, I started this business by going to a conference. We've hired our key people at, from conferences. All of our sourcing has the, the the contacts have been made through conferences. So I can't say enough for networking in this business. It's it's a niche and it's a tight knit little community. But there's people that are super willing to help. As far as investing in our funds, I will solicit, but I can only solicit to accredited investors. So, but that's the one thing nice about th- this type of a fund is we can use general solicitation, but only to accredited investors. So you can look around on the website and see what our funds look like and. Uh, We've had a great, fantastic track record. We have, actually have some institutional money that's come on board with us, both on the uh, equity side and as well as on the uh, debt financing. Uh, we have some uh, some debt facilities that have uh, have helped us to kind of leverage out and and get even better returns for our investors. So we're so we're we're having the time of our lives right now. We're just uh, we love helping people. We have a great team, and and we feel really good when a borrower is able to stay in their home. We're able to eat some of their debt, and you know they're like. They're super stoked and, and our investors are super, super stoked because we just had one closed today. I just had to send out a kudos to one of my staff members. We just uh, did a deal where we made a two and a half X in one year on the loan. It's a Chicago, Illinois loan, which is brutal to work in Chicago. Cook County is, is the worst. I was born I was born in Joliet, Illinois, but uh, not in say prison. your brother's name Jake? But, or, uh... <laughs> 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 That's right, man. But but it was wonderful because these people get this. So they're, they're, what they owed us was $184,000 on a second that we had paid $20,000 for, okay? $23,000 to be exact. And our team member was able to get a settlement. Let the, they, it was actually a short sale. We did a pre-approved short sale. And they settled our, our loan for $53,000. So we made a, a two and a half X in one year. And get this, the borrower's like, whoa, I just got forgiven $134,000 worth of debt. And we're like, yeah, works for you, works for us. So we, that's, that's a, we love it. We love, and we do those all day. I'd like to say we do one of those every day, but I mean, we've, get, we've done thousands of them.
1: That's excellent. That is excellent. And yes. Uh, Aspenfunds.us. You can go to the show notes page for links and uh, contact information. And so final question, I'm going to spring this on you. Pull out your crystal ball, Wipe off the part that says COVID nineteen, <laughs> but you know there was. A, I think it was Kramer yesterday on CNBC was talking about a V shaped recovery in the, in the stock market and and whatnot. And I, I'm curious, you know, everyone's asking me, what do you do right now, Keith, as far as originating notes? And I was like, well, you know, if it's not at 50 percent LTV, don't even come yet. You know, if it's not a deal, don't bring it to me. But what do, what do you see? I mean, you, you you're buying properties all over the place now. You are rehabbing the the borrower, the tenant, or the owner-occupant. Yeah, the payer. But what are you seeing, number one? And what is your gut telling you um, is going to happen? Um, well, first of all, I'll say this. If you go to our
0: website and request this, I think there might even be a link for it. My business partner, is a uh, he's put out an economic newsletter for many, many years. It's been super accurate. He takes the really big picture approach. And he has some really incredible insights regarding the housing market. And even through this COVID, which by the way, our, our are proving to be 100% true. I don't know if you've seen what the markets have done today.
1: They're up. But
0: the markets are on fire today. In fact, I didn't get into enough of the call options that I wanted to, but I made a significant profit overnight because I bought... I've been buying the call options on the indexes because I was a believer that, look, these companies that got... That their stocks got devalued by 40% overnight. Those companies didn't become worth 40% less overnight. So I started buying call options on the index. And I've... I've like 5X my account over the last two months. Okay. I'm just telling you. So I we just I just have a hopeful perspective. You know, we just the housing market's up. I mean, the the inventory's low, builder confidence is high right now, and we're back to bidding wars in, in the hot markets. I would watch out for overheated markets on the coasts. But honestly, even if you look at it's been it's been almost supernatural. If you look at the even the people that got forbearance agreements. The percentage of them that have not used the forbearance, but have continued making their payments. Did you hear the jobs numbers today? Just They just came out today. So Wall Street was expecting another 7.7 million jobless claims for the month of May. Did you hear what the number was, the actual number? We added 2.5 million. It was positive. So this thing is we may have some rough road. There's going to be some reshuffling. There's going to be some businesses that never come back. But to be honest with you, a lot of the businesses were probably on health, on life support to begin with. And, uh, you know, there's going to be opportunities in the commercial sector. Residential, I hope people are... I I don't hope people are panicking, but I've gotten so over fear-based living and fear-based. We have to be wise. We have to be prudent. But I mean, there's so much emotionalism in the markets and the media. Stokes it up and makes bigger issues out of smaller issues, and I just watch the markets and say, you know what, I'm I'm so tired of it. I'm just going to start. I'm going to start investing where I see this fear. So I saw this fear in the in the. um, I'm not a stock guy. I don't. I stay away from Wall Street. But I went to this thing and I saw this this Standard and Poor index go you know crash down, and I I texted some friends on the evening of March 23rd and said, guys, I'm not a profit and I'm not a stock guy, but my sense Is that this market can't find an excuse to go any lower, and the first good news that comes out, it's going to spike up. I perfectly pinged the day; it was March 23rd, so I started backing up the truck and buying call options on the on the SPY ETF, and it's gone, it's gone nuts. So anyway, that's my little story. I think there's tons of opportunity out there. You just have to be opportunity minded, and not you know, don't be a whiner. Just we got to knock off the wine or
1: something. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, um, I, I do this as um, my day job is, uh, it used to be corporate. Now I, I work from uh, basically from home, but that, that happened before COVID. So, I, you know, when everyone started staying home, I'm like, what's the big deal?
0: Yeah, same here. <laughs> I've been working from my, I work out of my home for more or less the whole time since 1986. So I'm, I'm running a company remotely. I live in Colorado and our headquarters is in Kansas City. So go figure. But I, I want to say something too, if I may, Keith. Everything that I just said like about don't be a whiner, I, I am 100% sensitive to the fact that there are some people that have really gone through and are still really going through some serious trouble. I, I'm not meaning this in any way as demeaning of that or being insensitive to it. I'm, just ta- I'm talking about really the financial markets and, and, and business in general. I mean, as entrepreneurs, we have to be looking for the opportunity. We have to be optimistic. And by the way, the opportunity to help people, that's that's really kind of the bottom line. So again, I apologize if I offended anybody with, with what I said, but it's really not aimed at somebody that's going through a legitimate hard
1: time. I felt like I knew exactly where you're coming from because I'll give you a prime example. A good friend of mine, two good friends of mine, I've tried to bring together one with money, one with a vision. And the one with a vision approached the one with money in a, in a fashion that I would not recommend, you know, basically hand out, give me and then the the friend with the vision said hey i thought your buddy was going to you know give me money i haven't started my business i was like well wait a minute anyway, it's it's the other guy's fault that you haven't started your business i just want to get this real clear so i, I know exactly i feel like i know exactly where the whining is coming from and what and what you meant cuz i was stunned i was just like how have i known you for so long <laughs> you know and i still hang out with you you know but it was it was the um yeah it's that um I just, I just completed reading uh, As a Man Thinketh by uh, James Allen and just a phenomenal, everything starts with the thoughts in your head, you know, and just, I'm, I've been telling everyone, read it, read it, read it. Uh, cause it, And then read it again and again, because it's not just a one-time thing. It's, you know, constantly remind yourself that, um, you know, oftentimes negative emotion starts as the seeds of thought. So
0: yeah, that's, that's probably my, uh, I'm a Christian and I'm a Bible guy. And that's probably one of my favorite and one of my life verses is, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And that is so true on every level of life. And uh, you know what? I've just decided to change the way I thinketh. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and it works. It's good. So, And by the way, the book that that came out of, I highly recommend that. My top-selling book of all times called The Holy Bible. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jim, thank you for coming on again, everyone. It's aspenfunds.us look them up. They've got a, a, quite a, uh, a model, fascinating business model. And Jim, thank you for coming on and explaining it and uh, shedding some light. And um, I uh, definitely want to uh, stay in touch with you because uh, I haven't 5X'd my Wall Street stuff, but um, I around the same time decided, you know what? Why not? You know, Now's the time to... And I poured it in and I'm, I'm only up 28%, but hey. That's all. Exactly, exactly. I'm, like, I'm listening to you going, I'm like, oh, you're doing call options. <laughs> okay. No. Yeah, I'm still <laughs> buying individuals. I was I was buying the Fang trade and and whatnot. So uh, yeah, but that's I mean
0: that's a safer bet, you know. But I looked at this thing and said this thing has mm-hmm. to recover. I didn't know the timeline, but I so I buy I buy far enough out expiration dates far enough out that I'm not going you know I can be patient. But actually, I end up getting in and out. I actually got in yesterday afternoon just before the closing bell with a bunch of options, a bunch of call options. And this morning the thing oh, the 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 Standard Poor. The SPY opened up so much that I just immediately, right after the opening bell, I said, you know, I'm just taking the money and running. I, you know, I made 40% on that money overnight. Legally. Yeah. And now I'm looking at it and it's like I got out like an hour and a half too early, but I don't even think like that anymore. It's like, look, when you make, nobody ever got broke taking a profit. Right?
1: Look, the way I look at it is either positive or negative. The, the number's black or red. Yep. Right. And so, you know, as long as it's on the black, you know, could you have, should you have, would you? Yeah. Be happy, take it, and move on.
0: I just like to look at it like this. I had a good month yesterday yeah, afternoon. Yeah, I mean, that's
1: a good month yesterday <laughs> afternoon. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go call my buddy and learn options. Uh, but uh, anyway, Jim, thanks again, man. Appreciate you coming on. All right, buddy. Great talking with you. Yeah, likewise. Take care. Bye bye, Bowie. And there you have it, folks. Jim Mafuccio discussing how he pays pennies on the dollar for non performing subordinate liens and still makes a mint. I want to thank Jim for coming on today's show and talking about his methods and his process, because I found it extremely fascinating. And as you can tell, I just let him go a lot on today's show, just because I wanted to learn. And boy, did I ever. So if you would like more information or learn more about Jim and Aspen Funds, please go to the show notes page, episodes 106 for the links. And now is the time where I grovel with you, dear listener. And thank you for for being a listener and sharing your time with me, because I do appreciate it. But I do ask for an honest rating and review over at iTunes, Google Podcast, Spotify, or whatever platform you are using to hear my voice. Please go over and an honest rating and review. Would love to have five stars when you give me what you think. Uh, that's all I can ask for is uh, what do you think I deserve? An honest rating and review. All right, y'all. Adios. Stay safe. And this here in late June of 2020, uh, I never thought I'd be quoting Jerry Springer, but uh, take care of each other. So besides self-awareness and prosperity, I wish you all safe and successful private lending, and I'll catch you on the next episode.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Private Lender Podcast with your host, Keith Baker. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit privatelenderpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time.